epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 13. We're reading the closing verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. As we gather this morning, we do give thanks with shouts and the salvation of our King, his deliverance from death, for in his great victory is our victory. All that we have is from you in grace. And so we entrust ourselves once again this morning to that great victory, and we pray that your spirit would illumine us and guide us into all truth. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are here listening. Amen. Morgan Peach is a grad student at a university in Oregon, and he struggles to get out of bed. Perhaps you've known someone who shares in that particular predicament. It works just like this. Each night he vows to his spouse that he's going to get up. He sets the alarm, has an ambitious schedule appointed for the morning. But then, after the first alarm goes off, he incrementally, at five minutes apart, hits snooze, trespassing his intended wake-up time. In fact, Morgan doesn't simply do this for 20 or 25 minutes, but several hours on end. His wife, Angela, finds it so amusing, they talk about it regularly, that she contacts NPR to do a radio segment on Morgan. NPR shows up, it was exam week, obviously a busy week for a graduate student. He had two research papers due, several tests, and 55 exams to grade. Morgan was confident that he was going to rise at 7.30 each of those mornings. Each night, he would explain to Angela his great intentions for the morning and set the alarm for 7.30 and then sleep until 9 or 9.30. The week was then reaching a climax on Thursday. Following day, his paper in geology was due, the exams needed to be graded, and so once again he was going to awake this time at 7 a.m. She asked him if he intended to do so, because obviously this snoozing routine interrupts her own sleep. At 10 o'clock, she asked him the question, 10 the next morning, why do you do this? <laughs> Why do you actually set the alarm and then go through three hours of interrupted sleep? And Morgan, for all of America on NPR, answers with perfect clarity. Listen carefully to what he says. It is almost as if the sleeping is that much sweeter if you have to get up, or if you think you have to get up, and then you don't. <laughs> Somehow, the sleeping gets better for Morgan when he knows he's trespassing something. When he believes that he needs to be up, it somehow makes his sleep more enjoyable. 
that when he should be busy about the work of the day, it is a pleasure to snooze along. And it is that snoozing along that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 also addresses for the church. It's a prolonging of the night that Paul uses the metaphor of darkness and sleep in Romans 13 to talk about the great danger that the church lives under. That the reality is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and has awakened us, and we have come to faith in him. But we live under the threat, and there's great risk that we will retreat into the darkness and fall asleep, that we will be half-hearted in our following of him. And this is what Paul has to address in the Romans church, and it is what our Lord Jesus addresses with us today. Because there is a moral type of lethargy, a laziness, a sloth, in which we can gratify our own sinful desires and not be keep in keeping with the reality that our Lord Jesus has established. Despite the fact that we've been awakened, we can lazily continue along in our sinful patterns. And so what needs to happen to us, though, that we not slumber along like this? It's one simple thing. We must wake up. Again and again, we must wake up to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul argues in verses 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is is at hand. And Paul explains here that because Jesus Christ is up from the dead and that he is never to die again, that dawn has broken, the night is over, and day is now at hand. This is what happens in Jesus' great victory. It's not up for debate. It's not up to a particular opinion. That this is the reality that Jesus, when he was brought out of the tomb, has now established. That day is at hand. And so we have no permission to behave or to insist that it is still night. In our actions, in our beliefs, in our attitudes. Paul is arguing that no, God has established something new. And so please stop slumbering. Wake up and come to this reality. We're to rise to new life and new purpose, is what he argues in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. He then provides a list of sensuous behaviors and also quarrelsomeness and jealousy. These were things that were common in the Roman world. Things that tear apart communities, things that don't please God, and he calls us to put those to death, saying that they belong to the night. Now we belong to the day, and we live in anticipation of the great day that's looking forward. And he's calling us, very specifically, to become what we one day will be to put away the things that are behind us, to have a life that is congruent, in keeping with the reality of day. And so for us as a church, it's a very practical question to answer. What is it exactly that can hold us in our slumber? 
What is it that pulls us back into the darkness? What is it that causes us to resist the grace that has established light? And I'd like to suggest very practically on three levels this morning what it is. What is it, what it is that draws us back into darkness? The first, our pride. We're familiar from the Gospel of John over the past few weeks that as Jesus preaches and teaches the gospel, that the gospel is an all-out assault on human pride, that he insults us before he consoles us, that Jesus is constantly exposing the sinfulness of human beings, whether they class themselves amongst the religious or whether they find themselves outside of the religious community that he doesn't have any who get to play favorites and there are none who get the pass. That Jesus convicts the world of their sin and he condemns them in that sin. God is saying that we live in darkness. And as we hear those words, it is an insult to those who find themselves not really that bad. And this tends to be the human condition and problem. We're really not that bad. Certainly we do some things that we're not proud of, but we struggle to accept the truth at the level of which Jesus is speaking it. Now as a pastor who has always served in reformed churches, we are always well taught that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many of you no doubt have put that verse to memory that we are all sinners and have all participated in that sin. We acknowledge this, but where we particularly struggle is then transferring it to our own particular sins. I participate in the same problem. I remember during my first year of marriage, a particular scenario that has played itself out over the last 19 years with unfortunate regularity. But I was studying the Beatitudes, and I was reading along by, in a commentary written by D.A. Carson, and I read the first of Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this was the great truth of the gospel, and I was also learning Calvinism at a deeper level at this point, learning about total depravity, and this is what Jesus was teaching, and I delighted in the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they are sinners in front of God. It landed, I owned it. Then I got to the second beatitude. and said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'd always wondered what the connection was between the poor in spirit and the mourning, and just assumed there wasn't one. As I was reading along in Don Carson's commentary, he then pointed out, and it was as if all the world stopped for me. Some very simple words. He says, the mourning that Jesus approves of here is the one who mourns over the condition of sin and their particular sins. And I realized that I was comfortable with sin as a concept. That's what I was comfortable with. Sin as an idea. But I was very uncomfortable with the idea of my particular sins the very specific things that I had done, not a concept, but I had to accept something else. 
Because what I really love to do, and particularly where the church often struggles, is that when we're confronted by our particular sins, we love to then explain them away. We don't want it to be that bad. We don't like to call darkness dark. We like to pretend that it's really not that awful. And this explaining away is our pride. And what Jesus today calls us out of is that particular form of religiosity. He calls us away from our pride. He calls us into the light of full day where there's forgiveness and freedom, where we can clearly own our shame, our failures, and all of our faults, and know that we stand vindicated and right with God only because of what Jesus has done. The key to being done with human pride is found in the cross of Jesus and in his resurrection and that this is the one place that we can boast and we forsake all other boasts, we forsake all other defense, we let it drop because our sins, not just as a concept, but our particular and our specific sins, the very things that bring us shame, we can freely own. The second thing that frequently goes on for us though in resisting the light is our ingratitude. God announces that in Jesus the new day has dawned. And it's common for us, especially in the southern part of the United States, that we have a place for religion and Jesus in our lives. That we acknowledge him, we give him space and time. He gets a spot in the weekly calendar, perhaps for Bible study or going to church. We have a strong category for being spiritual. But the struggle frequently for people is that Jesus becomes one commitment amongst our many other commitments. That grace is rich and full and Jesus is something that we want to do and be committed to. But the struggle is that he's not the preeminent commitment of our lives. And when Jesus is one commitment among our many other commitments, this reflects the ingratitude that so stubbornly lives inside of the human heart. That we're happy to give him something, but we're not gonna give him everything. He can have this portion of the schedule, but he is not going to be the commitment that controls all our other commitments. And this is the reflection of failure to give thanks to God, to recognize fully what he has done, and this too, holds us in the darkness, along with our pride. The final piece of this, though, what else holds us, is just our own laziness. God announces that a new day has dawned when Jesus Christ arises from the dead, and that we are to rise from sleep, to walk in the light of day, and to put on the armor of light, to put on our Lord Jesus. We are to become what we will one day be in the final resurrection. That is our aspiration and where our desires are to be set. And so we're not to hold on to the old stuff. We're to get rid of it. As you know, we're preparing to move out of this facility to have our exile in the Ramada Inn. And so the staff and others have been working very industriously to clean out this building. 25 years 
of congregational life have taken place in this facility. It's wonderful. And as we have opened drawers and cabinets, we have found residual layers, like an archeologist finding something. Of all the layers of Christ Church's life, we've seen pictures of some of you. It's wonderful. (laughs) One particular cabinet that we opened was in the audio visual booth. And as we were going through the drawer, we found a whole box of cables. And Andy Ziff, our music director, came over to me and said, Chuck, do you know what this is? I said, no. So we opened the box, start going through it. And we find a box full of cables in which pieces of tape had been wrapped around each one of them. And on it was written, dead. <laughs> a whole box, not just one. The whole box. Now we were preserving that for all eternity. I don't know why. But isn't this what you do? Isn't this what all of us do? That we have our sins, we have our faults, we have our failures, and we hold on to them. We don't toss them out. Why? It's purely because of our laziness. For some particular reason, perhaps it's an attraction to a particular sin, or perhaps it's just that we don't think God really forgives us, so we don't get rid of it. We don't pitch it. We don't throw it in the furnace and let it burn. We carry it along with us. And do you know what inevitably happens when you carry along your past? It will visit you again and again and again. When Jesus Christ died, he put your sin to death. You need to pitch it. You need to throw it out. You need to allow it to be destroyed and put on the rubbish pile. That when he bears our sins in his body, they are fully taken. And so in your laziness and in your sloth, don't allow them to sit there accumulating dust, holding you down, keeping you in shame, bearing their weight upon you. No, our Lord Jesus, in dying and rising on the third day, has done everything to put away our pride. He's done everything to put away our ingratitude and he has done everything to put away our laziness. And he's calling us out of that darkness to embrace light. And we will never embrace that light perfectly until the great day of which Paul speaks of that he labels salvation. But he does announce that we have freedom because Jesus Christ is up from the dead to walk in the light of full day. And so while the church is always at risk of slumber, of slumber, of falling asleep, being narcoleptic, the church has also promised something far greater, that we can put on our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been engrafted into him, and then that he constantly awakens and reawakens us to draw us out of the darkness. And so on this Easter Sunday, as we celebrate our living Lord, look to him. Appropriate all that is yours in him through faith. Say no to pride, say no to ingratitude, say no to the laziness that lives inside of us and come out of your sleep and fully know him and give thanks to him. Be humbled beneath him. Let him draw you. Let's pray.
And Father, we do celebrate and give thanks for the living stone who has risen from the dead, who tramples down all of our sin. In him is life. And we call upon you this morning that you will help us, that we would know this life to the full. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.